0: I'm Osnat Katz
1: and I'm Robin Skajal
0: This is The Sound of Astronomy where we'll be bringing you news, views and interviews from the forefront of astronomy This episode we'll be talking about planets from neighbouring Mars to worlds beyond our solar system.
1: We'll also have news of a strange anomaly discovered in the latest survey of the stars of the Milky Way. Plus, I'll be telling you how to observe a rare total eclipse of the moon. Welcome to the Sound of Astronomy.
0: 2018 has been the year of the exoplanets. In April, NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Satellite Survey, or TESS, was launched to hunt over the entire sky for exoplanets. At the moment, it's got to its final orbit and is currently being tested. Next year, ESA's going to launch KOPS, a smaller satellite which is going to look at exoplanets we've already identified. This might not seem very useful, but k is going to look at exoplanets whose mass we know and measure their radii. This will allow scientists to work out their density and thus what they're made of. So it's going to be very cool, but don't expect Earth Mark II to show up anytime soon. Further into the future, ESA will also launch ARIEL, the Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey. This will study exoplanets' atmospheres to find out more about how planets outside our solar system form and evolve. The Sound of Astronomy's Paul Sutherland talked to Ariel's principal investigator, Giovanna Tonetti, to find out more.
2: There are thousands of planets now known in just a short time we've discovered so many, Um, but the next question obviously is going to be to find out what they're like. So I presume that's what you want to know.
3: Yes, absolutely. It's a, a bit the kind of question that we want to try to address in the next decade. Um, and what we understood so far with current instruments, it is possible to uh, get to the chemical composition of atmospheres even with current instruments. Mm. Uh, but we can't really get the level of accuracy that we want. Mm. Um, and there will be observatories that will do a better job. But at the same time, we don't want to do it just for a few tons of planets. We want to be able really to explore um, all the potential characteristics of planets and stars and go for the large number in order to get some statistical answer, um, not not just cherry picking if you want, for the best planets. And that's how ERA comes in, giving us the opportunity to explore about 1,000 exoplanet atmosphere. Um, looking at planets which are very different about uh, future.
2: Right, and uh, you mentioned the aerial mission and this is like the new f- flagship uh, mission that ESA has picked. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that mission? When, um, What is it basically going to do and um, when will it fly?
3: Yes, aerial has been selected basically last week to be uh, the next uh, medium-sized mission that ESA will, uh, is planning to deliver in mm-hmm. 2028. Um, So we're very excited about this opportunity. It will be a dedicated mission that has been designed from scratch really to look at exoplan atmospheres and the unique selling point of the is that we will use the entire time really to look at exoplanet atmosphere and that's how we get into the 1000 sort of uh, exoplanets being analysed. we are talking about a one meter telescoping space a, in a vantage point uh, that is called L2, which is about 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth. Yes. Um, and we look at the light from these planets uh, both in the visible light where our eye are seeing, but also in the infrared, which is where most of the molecules are absorbing.
2: Right. I was going to ask you how it works. So this is going to be a spacecraft a long way from the Earth which is going to be observing invisible and infrared light and um, what how, how can that light tell us what the planets are like?
3: What we will use is a technique that has been uh, so far been uh, very successful in, in delivering the first observations of exoplanet atmosphere which is the transit or eclipse techniques uh, they're sort of thrust different to each other. The idea here is that we are relying on the fact that many of these planets have orbits for which at a certain point the planet is passing between the observer and the star or going behind the star. Mm. And so basically knowing where the planet is in time allows us to play tricks to sum up or subtract the contribution.
2: Yes, you're observing... You planets, the transit planets, and also when, the wobbling when the, ones.
3: The yeah, well, we, we, no, we're not oh, looking not. at the wobble. The no. wobble is useful when you want to um, measure the mass. Right. Here we're just relying on planets which are passing in front of the star or going mm. behind it, and basically we can sum up the contribution on the planet and the star or subtract it through mm. time, and in that way we can separate the light from the planet from the light from the star. Um, and if we are able to analyse the planet light, uh, mm. not just the full light, but really to divide it into wavelengths and so get a spectrum, uh, right. then out of that spectrum we can work out what are the molecules absorbing So, so it's atmosphere. like a
2: spectroscope on the spacecraft yes. basically? Yes. Mm. yes, we
3: have a, a couple of spectrographs uh, uh, on board and we can analyse both infrared and visible light in spectroscopy.
2: And what do you expect to find and what do you hope to find from these observations?
3: Well, you know, um, given that we have seen a huge diversity in exoplanets uh, when it comes to very basic parameters like the size and the mass and the orbital parameters, mm. to a degree I'm sure you we know, will be quite surprised by many unexpected things. So of course there is a, a huge literature or prediction how this atmosphere might or might not look like, but with that is true need to have observations. So we are prepared to, to be able to observe all mm. the molecules that normally absorb in exoplanet atmospheres uh, or even in, uh, in uh, cool stars. Yes. And we know that most of these molecules are absorbing in the infrared. That's why we need to have a spectrograph able to analyze that light. But I'm sure we'll be very surprised by many unexpected discoveries. So we have a plan, but I'm sure that this plan will be probably obsolete by the time we see the observations. So you're always
2: prepared for the unexpected? Yeah. Could we even get evidence to say whether a planet is inhabited or not, or habitable?
3: Well, Ariel is uh, certainly designed to look mainly at planets which are warm or hot, so not necessarily uh, really to focus on habitable worlds. Said that if there are some planets... uh, uh, typically the ones that are orbiting around cool stars uh, and they're uh, very close to us so perhaps in some more favourable situation we might get to more temperate sort of situation but it's, it's not the key point of the mission
4: Right,
2: well it sounds very exciting I wish you the best of luck with the mission Thank, Thank you, you very you so much, much for talking <laughs> to us
0: went to the Royal Society's Summer Science Exhibition. Every year, researchers across the UK work hard to create interactive, engaging exhibits, and it's a really good opportunity to just chat to scientists about what they're working on. One of the exhibits was about the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which is currently orbiting Mars and looking for tiny amounts of certain gases, so trace gases, in the atmosphere. This could help us to find out whether life really is on Mars or not. I spoke to PhD student David Slade from the Open University about dust storms, alien life and much more.
4: My project particularly is looking at methane, Um, and uh, we have previously detected methane in the atmosphere of Mars, Um, the methane gets removed from the atmosphere and replenished into the atmosphere um, much more quickly than we would expect and some of the sources that we suspect um, are replenishing the methane in the atmosphere are um, potentially volcanism or meteoric impacts but actually a lot of researchers think those two um, ideas aren't particularly viable Um, so instead we're thinking maybe subsurface microbiology might be responsible for methane, using carbon dioxide and hydrogen as food and energy sources, and then producing methane, um, or potentially um, something called serpentinization in the subsurface, which is the interaction of, of water and um, rocks like olivine, which there's plenty of in the subsurface of Mars. And so, for both of those to occur there needs to be some sub, uh, subsurface liquid water so um, we're really hopeful that there's subsurface liquid water and in the presence of water um, on earth we always find life so again mo- Specifically for me, I'm hoping that that's the case on Mars and that we'll find subsurface microbiology that is uh, uh, being sourced yeah. source yeah. for the methane.
0: That's absolutely yeah. tantalizing. So, do you think that um when the ExoMars rover uh, um, gets here, hopefully in 2020, it will ab- it'll be able to drill down and maybe find evidence of some of this uh, subsurface geological activity and maybe even subsurface water?
4: Um, yeah, hopefully it will be able to do that indeed. yeah So, the drill on ExoMars is five meters. That's quite interesting because the temperature of that region is very dependent on the temperature um, of the atmosphere, so the, 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 the weather, um, so it's unlikely that we'll find life in that particular region, um, or, or even liquid water in that region, apart from maybe um, seepage in terms of the, we heard a recurring slope lineae from um, um, previous research. Do you
0: mind explaining that to our listeners
4: oh, So, so um, a few years ago one of the orbiters saw these the change in colour in the, in the regolith yep. uh, in, in down. Um, and um, they were termed recurring slope lineae, and what that was thought to be was briny, like really salty water um, seeping from this subsurface to yeah. the surface, um, and, and again, that would be temperature dependent. So, um, there, there is a lots of evidence to suggest that there is liquid water. In the subsurface of Mars, um, it would either have to be really briny to um, so then doesn't freeze because of the temp- low temperatures, um, or it would have to be e- even deeper than the ExoMars drill could could reach, um, so then it's not affected by the temperature of the of the surface where temperatures are more yeah. stable. Yeah. But, yeah well,
0: NASA has sent Mars Insight um, yeah. to the surface quite recently as well, hasn't it? Um, will that be able to detect water sloshing
4: around? Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't actually know if, if um, Insight will be able to, to do that. Um, one of the interesting things about Insight for me is that if methane is in going back to methane, if you don't mind, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah um, if the methane is in the subsurface of Mars um, and it's produced by microbiology, microbiology would have to be trapped within the, within pore space, so within tiny little little gaps in the subsurface. Yeah. So then it's not affected by the atmospheric um, pressures, which would probably kill the microbes. Um, so. What InSight could tell us is if there's some kind of um, event which would open up the pore space, so it caused like a crack to open up where this methane is being produced and then the methane um, diffuses through that space to the atmosphere. So that's what I'm really excited about with InSight. Unfortunately, I don't know uh, much about yeah. the, the, the implications of, of whether it will find water yeah. sloshing around, yeah. which would be awesome. I yeah. <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah. Um, but another
0: thing as well is definitely what, um, what? Curiosity has detected... at. Is that these are periodic? I'm not sure if this is also um, what Nomad has detected. But would this perhaps imply that at least in one part of Mars you have something that periodically happens under the surface that releases all this methane? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Um,
4: so. The periodic periodicity that you're referring to, from the um, the um, paper that was released in Science a few weeks ago, yeah. um, My personal opinion is that that's some kind of um, adsorption and desorption, recycling of the methane. So, um, which is temperature dependent. So, you would in fact over a diurnal, so daily cycle, um, and over a seasonal, yearly cycle, you would see that kind of of um, fluctuation. Um, Whether that um, seasonal fluctuation then applies to deep subsurface microbiology? We're, we're yet to find out, but it is very exciting. You're, you're correct, yeah.
0: No, it's been absolutely amazing. Are you currently experiencing problems or concerns? I mean, because there's a global dust storm on Mars, yeah. it must be really difficult to get any data. Yeah, storm. no,
4: you're absolutely correct. So um, the Trace Gas Orbiter um, arrived about a year ago, and after aerobraking for a sort of eight months, we started doing preliminaries, and then just as we were ready to turn the instruments on for real science, like the actual science, the dust storm started uh, and they, they kind of happen at about this time in, in the Mars year every year. So it's not unsurprising, but what is surprising is that it has become an circ- encircling dust storm. Uh, but what that means for Nomad is that all we can see is dust. So we can't see methane, we can't see any of the trace gases in the lower orbit, I'm afraid. So uh, yeah, absolutely, we all we're seeing is dust um, and that will be uh, the case for the next few months at least, yeah.
0: Yeah.
4: Unfortunately. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Oh no, but hopefully after that we'll get some really good science coming out of the TraceGut or maybe even find if there was life on Mars at one point. Hopefully so, (laughs) yes. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Back in April, ESA's Gaia mission released data on over a billion stars in our Milky Way. Since then, scientists have been eagerly combing through the data and turning up some tantalising new info. James Binney, a theoretical astrophysicist at the University of Oxford, told The Sound of Astronomy a little bit more about some of the weird things we've been finding with Gaia's help. I'm here at the Royal Society Summer Exhibition with Professor James Binney. Do you mind introducing yourself and your work first of all, um, Professor?
5: So I'm um, in Oxford. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist and uh, so, we've been working for about 10 years now on preparing for extracting science from a mission, the Gaia mission, uh, which is measuring the motion across the sky of between one and two billion stars. Um, and we got our first significant release of data from this at the end of April this year. So, we're all very uh, excited about this and doing everything we can to. Um, extract science as quickly as possible. I haven't been doing entirely the things that I intended to be doing at this time because many of us have been distracted by a rather strange feature in the data that was completely unexpected and we're not absolutely certain is a real physical phenomenon rather than an artifact arising from the way that the raw data from the satellite had been processed into a catalogue of stellar positions and stellar motions. However, um, there's a, quite a, a reasonable suspicion that what we're seeing here is a signature of an interaction between the spiral waves in the galaxy and the corrugation waves. So the spiral waves, the spiral arms, arise from coordinated motions in and out of the stars in the disk, and are fundamentally to do with motion in the plane of the galaxy whereas the corrugation waves are due to associated with systematic and coordinated motions of stars perpendicular to the plane of the galaxy. So, we have a fairly good understanding now, I would have said only from the last four years, would I have said that our understanding was reasonably satisfactory, of the spiral arms of the galaxy in the rather large idealization that the disk is a two-dimensional object and <coughs> stars don't move vertically. We don't have a comparably satisfactory understanding of the corrugation waves, these waves associated with vertical motion perpendicular to the disk of the galaxy, but we have some understanding. But as to coupling of these two, to couple these two, we need vertical waves which include Uh, motion in and out of the galaxy which we don't have, what understanding we have is associated with stars that are fundamentally going around on circular orbits and we need an understanding of spiral structure in the context, a realistic context of stars which move vertically in addition to moving in and out radially and it's kind of frustrating to feel that this unexpected phenomenon in the data is probably due to this coupling between the Spiral motions and the corrugation motions, and not to have a decent analytical, mathematical understanding of how this coupling would happen—only vague physical ideas—and and and at the same time, it's very difficult to simulate this in a computer. Although people are making brave efforts to do those simulations, but it's very difficult to keep the noise level in the computer low enough to study the the phenomenon that we want to study.
0: Would there be? any ways of getting some physical observations out there just to see um, if this is just something coming from Gaia or whether this is something that is actually happening in our actual galaxy?
5: Well, the data is still new and, and, and when, when data are new, the first thing that people do is sort of ask whether they, uh, they have a sort of internal consistency that they should have if they're if if they're correct, rather than containing artefacts, and that process is still ongoing. I don't think we need more data. What we need is more time, to more more imagination and more creativity to address the data that we've that we've got. Um, undoubtedly, over time, there will be a better understanding of the systematics of the observations. So, a better understanding of what. Things go wrong in the process of the measuring in the measuring process. What things go wrong in the data processing? In a way, if we could come, if we could find a physical explanation for this feature of the data, it would it would act as a strong endorsement of the data processing. If, on the other hand, we can't find a physical explanation of this phenomenon, then it it, you know, it will it will sharpen the search for for features of the for the features of the data processing which are wrong. Of
0: course um Gaia is data releases are quite open aren't they? They're sort of available to anyone all over the world.
5: Absolutely so you you, you can go to the relevant website and, and, and download the relevant data and the data there is a particular subbody of the data associated with the radial velocity spectrometer. So these are stars for which Doppler shifts have been measured. Which is the main focus of professional astronomers at this time too, simply because it's it's a it's a relatively small, manageable data set and of, of yet of completely unprecedented quality, and amateurs can certainly it's it, on your laptop you can. You can hold these data and you can do computations relevant to these data just on your laptop and to a large extent using public domain software software that's released to everybody. So I would say get ahead and have a go.
0: Oh definitely. It's good to know that there's still a role for amateur astronomers even with data sets of this size. Thank you for your time Professor Billy. Pleasure. As Professor Binney's just mentioned, you can go to the Gaia Archive at gea.esac.esa.int/slash archive and download all the data you want. If you're interested, check it out! The Sound of Astronomy is brought to you by the Society for Popular Astronomy. Our aim is to bring astronomy to all. To find out how you can get involved and learn more about the skies, head over to www.popastro.com. And now here's Robin with some news about a spectacular event that's coming up at the end of July.
1: There's a total eclipse of the Moon on Friday the 27th of July, and for once it's going to be an evening event that everybody should be able to watch, weather permitting of course. The last total lunar eclipse visible from the UK in September 2015 took place in the early hours of the morning, so most people missed it. But this one should be widely visible. A lunar eclipse, just to remind you because I'm sure you really knew anyway, happens when the Moon goes into the Earth's shadow, so it goes from being the familiar bright moon to a very dark one. As well as being interesting to watch, they can be very beautiful. Of course, the moon is always beautiful anyway, but during an eclipse it can go dark orange or red, so it can be a dramatic sight. And this one will be particularly interesting because it takes place as the moon is rising. People farther east than the UK will see the whole event, but from the British Isles it rises when it's fully eclipsed. Normally, during a lunar eclipse, the moon starts out as a regular full moon, a complete disk, but then we start to see its left-hand edge become gradually darker, until it seems to have a circular bite taken out of it. This is quite different from the phases of the moon, caused by the sun shining on it from different angles as the moon goes around the Earth every month, starting with crescent, then going to a half moon, then gibbous when it's nearly a complete disk, then full. A lunar eclipse can only take place at full moon because that's when the Sun is exactly opposite the Moon in the sky. In fact the true full moon always rises exactly opposite the Sun and at the same time as the Sun is setting. And it doesn't happen at every full moon because more often than not the tilt of the Moon's orbit means that it goes above or below the Earth's shadow. So, to continue the story of the eclipse, which takes place over a matter of a few hours, eventually the moon is completely within the Earth's shadow, so all the sun's light is cut off, but it doesn't go completely black. There's always a bit of light refracted around the edge of the Earth, even when the sun is completely covered by the Earth. If you could stand on the moon during a total lunar eclipse, you'd see the sun gradually being hidden by the Earth's larger disk and the sunlit landscape around you would get darker and darker. But even when it's totally behind the Earth, there would be red light bent around by our atmosphere. No human has stood on the Moon during a total eclipse, but in 1967 a spacecraft on the Moon, Surveyor 3, did photograph the event with its black and white camera. It showed that some parts of the atmosphere were brighter than others. Where there was a lot of cloud it was dark, so if all the parts of Earth at the rim as seen by the Moon happen to be cloudy, the eclipse would be very dark, and if they were clear, it would be bright. Another thing that affects the brightness is whether there have been any major volcanic eruptions in the past year or so. The eruptions in Hawaii and Guatemala might make this eclipse darker. So what will we see on Friday the twenty-seventh of July? The moon will rise as usual around 9 pm BST the exact time depends on where you are in the UK. And, as I said, it will be exactly opposite the sun in the sky. But instead of being bright and easily visible, assuming there are no clouds of course, it will be dark and red. Just how dark, we can't say. It could be completely invisible, or it could be deep red or orange in colour. The moon usually is yellowish or reddish when it rises because it's so low in the sky, but on this occasion it will be a much deeper colour. My guess is that most people won't be able to see it just as it rises. Maximum eclipse is at 9.21pm BST, when the moon is only a few degrees above the southeastern horizon as seen from the south of the UK, although from the northwest of the UK the moon doesn't rise until about 9.30pm. But around 30 minutes after sunset it should be easier to find as it gets higher and the sky gets darker. It will probably be a very deep red, and even non-Moon watchers will realise that this is a very unusual appearance. Then the left-hand edge of the Moon will start to get a bit lighter until at 10.13pm sunlight starts to return to the rim of the Moon and the total eclipse becomes a partial one. Over the next hour or so the dark shadow slowly leaves the disk and by 1119 the Moon is only in the outer shadow so it just appears darker than usual at the right-hand side. By half past midnight it's all over and the Moon is back to being a full white disc again. You'll be able to see the eclipse from anywhere in the UK, though you'll need a clear southeastern horizon to see the earlier stages when it's rising. And from about 10pm you'll see the planet Mars right below it, appearing red itself because Mars really is red. Use the naked eye, binoculars or a telescope to view it, whatever you have available. No danger from it, apart from being overwhelmed by the excitement of it all or not looking where you're going if you're driving. You don't need filters or anything like that. And while you're out there gazing at the Moon, look around the sky. Mars, as I've said, is right below the Moon. Right now it's making a particularly close approach to Earth, and appears larger than it has done since 2003. If you have a telescope, take a look and you should see its reddish disk and maybe a dark marking or two. You might see what you think is a polar cap, which Mars does have, but actually it's more likely to be a high-level cloud, also common on Mars. And to add to the spectacle, we have Venus, Jupiter and Saturn around as well. Venus is a very bright object over in the west, although it is rather low down and sets before 11pm. Through a telescope it looks a bit like a half-moon, so take a look. Then, more to the south is Jupiter, not quite as bright, but also very prominent. Even binoculars will show its four large moons, although one of them, Callisto, is quite close to the planet on the 27th of July, so you might not be able to pick it out without a telescope. Then between Jupiter and Mars is Saturn. A small telescope will show its famous rings, and with binoculars you can see that the planet isn't a circular disk like Jupiter, but looks more oval in shape. To cap it all, about 11pm the International Space Station comes over, rising in the west and crossing the sky in just a few minutes. It's brighter than any of the planets, and from the south of the country it passes more or less overhead, though from the north of Scotland it's lower down. So, the 27th of July promises to be a great night for astronomy, and a great night for a party outside if it's warm enough. It's Friday night after all, so, fingers crossed for really lovely weather.
0: That's all we have time for right now. But thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. This has been The Sound of Astronomy with Osnat Katz, Robin Skagel and Paul Sutherland. Thanks to our guests Giovanna Tinetti, David Slade and James Binney And thanks to Carolus Rex for the music.